My name is Daniel. I get the opportunity to teach uh, God's Word today as we are in part three of a series we're calling Getting to Know Your Bible. And I want to ask you a question as we kick off this morning. Have you ever been in a situation where you just had to do the best you could with the, the tools, the knowledge, and the resources that you had at your disposal? Yeah, right? Like, we all have. Like, oh man, I heard, I heard that, right? We've all been in that situation in our life where we just did the best we could with the knowledge, the skills, and the resources that we had. I'm sure that there are hundreds of stories that I would love to hear and even tell you of my life where I just, I just gave it my best, right? I gave it my best shot. But I believe that, for many of us, is our relationship to the Bible. At least it has been, or maybe it currently is. Like, we just do the best we can. Uh, we know that we're supposed to read it, and we trust in it, and so like, hey, it looks like this in the morning. We wake up, we're like, God, this is your word, speak to me. And we're just like, give me a good one. <laughs> and you're like, we're like, open it up. This is not planned, by the way. All right, here we go. I'm in Exodus. Last service, I end up in Numbers, and so this is good. Let's see here. Right here, here we go. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the son of Israel over his head on his breastplate, the decision as continuing memorial before the Lord. All right, I got to have some nugget of truth out of there for my life today. Um, yeah, so I should uh, have a continually remember the Lord. That sounds good, right? Let's tackle our day. Let's try again, actually. You know, like that wasn't a good one. You're laughing because it's probably you in the mornings, and so. <laughs> Leviticus, this is a good one to land in. All right, here we go. Leviticus 3.1. If your offering is a fellowship offering, you are to offer any animal from your herd, whether male or female, present it to the Lord without any defect. All right, if there's farmers in here, this applies to you. <laughs> but... But if not, like that's what we treat our Bible much of the time for better or for worse. We're, we're looking for a nugget of truth that we can just apply to our heart. Like let's move on with our day and let's get this rolling. And many of us, that's what we do. We're like, hey, I just need, I just need something. I need something to hit me good with and I'm gonna continue on um, in my day. And what I wanna do this morning, my aim rather to do this morning is I wanna put another tool in your tool belt for reading God's word. In week one, we talked about how we can trust the Bible. Last week, Drew taught us about how we can study and, and get into God's word for ourselves. And, and this week, I want to talk about the grand story of the Bible, that it's not just these randomly placed verses that could change your life in this one instance if you take it and apply it, like your verse of the day. Like, I'm not saying verse of the day are bad, but I'm not saying there's more to that. That the Bible isn't like your family quilt, if you will. I don't know if your family has a quilt like mine does, but these, you know, these beautiful pieces of artwork, uh, you know, that have all of these different uh, squares that are, that are beautiful, that tell a story, that the only reason they're connected together is because somebody put them on a single, singular piece of fabric. That the Bible is not these individualized stories that may or may not have a moral principle for your life that are simply only bound by a singular piece of leather, but rather the Bible is tapestry. It is actually one story that's flowing together and it has in immense value to your life when you see the full picture. And we see this in the first Easter. 
In the first Easter story, we have Jesus after he's uh, came back from the dead and he's walking on this road. In Luke's gospel, we see that it's called the road to Emmaus. And Jesus walks up on these two guys that are having a conversation about the events that have transpired over the past few days. They have no idea that they're talking to Jesus, but Jesus begins to ask them some questions about what's happened. And they begin to tell him about this Jesus guy who they thought he was the savior and the Messiah, but apparently not because he's dead now. So that not much saving that happened there. And, and then Jesus speaks up to them. He kind of interjects with some words of wisdom. In verse 25 of Luke chapter 24, he says this. Jesus says, how foolish are you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's another way to say the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, that's just a simple way to say the rest of the Old Testament. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Or to say it in a point, if you will, if you don't understand the person of the scriptures, you'll miss the main message. If you don't understand the person of the scriptures, you will miss its main message. Because what Jesus does in Luke 24 is he points to himself in the Old Testament. He points to himself in the Old Testament. And this morning, we're going to see three different patterns of Jesus. There's, there's many that you could look at, but we're going to look at three specific patterns of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. Because you'll see this, all throughout the Old Testament, we see patterns of Jesus and his mission to save people from their sins. We see all these different patterns. And we're going to start at the beginning, like the beginning, beginning in Genesis 1 verse 1. And to see the, pat, the Jesus pattern in creation, the Jesus pattern in creation. Genesis 1-1 is a pretty popular verse, right? It's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the question I want to ask is, how? How do you do that? All right? And in Genesis chapter 1, you're going to see this pattern, if you will, emerge. Genesis 1-3, and God said. Genesis 1-6, and God said. Genesis 1-9, and God said. Genesis 1-11, and then God said. Genesis 1-14, and God said. Genesis 1-20, and God said. Genesis 1-24, then God said. We see this pattern emerging that God created all that was, or there was not, and made it into being by speaking. He spoke it into creation. But we see from other parts of scripture that God the Son, not only God the Father, but God the Son was intimately involved in creation. John, starting his New Testament gospel in John chapter 1, starts very similar to Genesis. It says this, in the beginning very familiar words, was the word, yeah, we just read about it, you know, God spoke a lot of times, all right, and the word was with God, okay, that makes sense, the word was with God, because it was in his mouth, he spoke it out, right, but here, here we go, and the word was God, he was with God in the beginning, and through him, all things were made, without him, nothing was made that has been made. So we get Jesus. We, we, we celebrate a lot at Christmas. He's the word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. But he is intimately involved in creation. Paul likes to say it like this in Colossians 1.16. For in him, that's Jesus, all things were created, 
things in heaven, things on earth, things visible and invisible. That God the Father was speaking things into creation, but the word at which he was speaking, the way at which it was happening was through Jesus. You could say it like this, that Jesus was the light switch of heaven. God said, let there be light. Jesus flipped on the light switch, okay? He is the light switch of heaven. And by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Trinity is intimately involved. It's not just the Father speaking. It's the Spirit hovering. It's the Son happening through creation. And the Bible tells us that these events are good, that it's good that what all God created, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all that he created was very good. But you don't have to read your Bible long for the very good to turn out not good. (laughs) And when you get to chapter three, the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve, that God created, they broke everything. They messed it all up. They sinned against God. They broke God's law. They broke God's command. And now that good world that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit created is messed up. And I want to tell you this, in the same way at which God created the world, he plans to redeem the world through the son, through his word. And you see in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, most say this is the first promise of the gospel. In Genesis three fifteen, it says this, and I, the I that is speaking is God the father, will put enmity or strife or conflict between you. The you is the serpent or Satan himself. Between you and the woman, the woman is the first woman ever created, as Eve. Between your offspring, he moves from singular to plural, I want you to notice this, your offspring and hers. You see, God divides the world into ultimately two groups of people, those who are following him, those who are not. But notice he zeroes back into this singular. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That God the Father speaking to the enemy, to the serpent, to Satan himself, says that there's two camps, but ultimately the victory will be won by this one he. He will crush your head. You see, Jesus is needed because of our sin. And I I don't want you to miss Jesus in all of the Bible. We see him in the events of creation and the way that creation came into being was through Jesus. And the way that God the Father plans to redeem the world is the same way he created it, through Jesus. But what you need to understand is that in the Old Testament, the next pattern you're going to see is the Jesus pattern in people, the individuals of the Old Testament. But since this promise was made to the first man and woman and Satan there in the garden, and then they tell everybody like, okay, it's all good. We messed it up, guys, but God's going to send a snake crusher, okay? It's all going to be good. But since that promise was made, every leader that arises in the Old Testament, the people of the Old Testament are asking a simple question. Is this one the snake crusher? Is is this one the snake crusher? Every person that arises, it doesn't matter what role they serve in. If they're a king, if they're a priest, if they're a prophet, if they're just a good leader, the people in the Old Testament are asking this question. Is this one the snake crusher? But every time they get let down, every time they get let down until Jesus. And Paul tells it very plainly in Romans 5.14. Romans 5.14, he says this, you see, death reigned from the time of Adam, that's the first man, to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. That's a, a written command, as Adam did. Well, how did Adam sin? He sinned by breaking a verbal command. He knew what God said, chose not to do it. 
And he says, Paul says that Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. He's a pattern. That's plural. There's many that are coming, but there's one who was coming. We know that one is Jesus, but who are the patterns of people who came before? I want to isolate four different roles, if you will, from the Old Testament that we could isolate in on, but you, there's many more that you could talk about. Let's talk about prophets. That Jesus is the ultimate prophet better than Samuel and better than Jonah. That he is the perfect word of God who delivers perfect words to his people that they are called to follow with their lives. You can see verses for all of these references that I'm going to make in your Northridge Notes app, but they're not going to read them and they're not on the screen. So dive into your notes this week, all right, before you eat turkey, all right? He is the ultimate prophet. And the next one is kings, that Jesus is a better king than the first king saw, and he's a better king than the best king, who is David. And David himself, who the people thought that he was the best king that they would ever have, there never was going to be a better one. David's told in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that someone from his family line would reign on the throne forever. And in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus's dad, Joseph, is in the family lineage of David. So Jesus is that eternal king from the family line of David. He's our eternal king. He is our ultimate prophet. But he's also the, the greatest high priest. The role of high priest started in the book of Exodus from Aaron and his sons. And simply the role of a high priest in the Old Testament was to help people worship God, to get everything out of the way and just help people come into God's presence. But if you read your Old Testament, it doesn't take long for you to figure out these guys were not very good at their job, okay? They were selfish, they were greedy, they were narcissists, they were all these things. And they wanted themselves to be propped up. But we see in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is called our great high priest who passed through the heavens and did on his people's behalf what those high priests in the Old Testament had to do year after year after year. And he did it once. You see, Jesus is our high priest who ushers us right into the presence of God through him. And the last one, the fourth role I want to talk about is a righteous suffering leader. You see leaders all throughout the Old Testament follow this pattern as they come into leadership. They get rejected by the people that they're supposed to be leading, and then they lead them, and then they get exalted. Like Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph is actually thrown into prison. He spends years in prison before he gets put into power, into Pharaoh's palace, or not, uh, into Potiphar's house, and then some other places. Moses. Moses tries to lead his people, but then they reject him. He has to flee to the uh, land of Midian and go away, but then God brings him back to lead his people. The prophet Isaiah says that the suffering servant, the ultimate one, who is Jesus, would be acquainted with sorrow, grief, and rejection. And you see Jesus, if you think about his last week on this earth before he would give his life, he rode into town the people celebrated him and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They worshiped him. They threw their coats on the ground and palm leaves, all these wonderful things. And the same people who worshiped him, it's like, this is our leader. This is our king. They rejected him on Friday and said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He was rejected by the people and then he gets exalted. But the way in which he gets exalted is what no one expects. He's actually lifted up and hung on a cross. You see, the way that Jesus does his redeeming is not through his role as a king. 
He doesn't come wielding a sword to be the snake crusher to chop off the snake's head. It's not through his role as a prophet, even though he is the perfect prophet, and he doesn't deliver a powerful word that would just demolish the snake. It's not through his role as a high priest, even though that any of these could be argued because Jesus is the perfect and ultimate of each one of these roles. But Jesus does his snake crushing, does his saving to the role of a sufferer. That he is hung on a cross and gives himself for people to come to. Which is why John the baptizer in the book of John, when he is standing in the Jordan River, all these people, all these Jewish people on the banks of the Jordan River are getting ready to be baptized. John's telling them they need to be baptized for repentance and follow God truly and not just with their lips, but actually with their lives and all that they are. And Jesus, getting ready to start his ministry, walks down the banks of the Jordan River to be baptized by John the baptizer and he stops everything that's going on. John the baptizer stops everything that's happening in that moment and he gets all attention on Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for all these Jewish people, for him to say that that one's the lamb, it's that one, they would have all these stories of how many times they've heard about the Exodus Passover from their Jewish upbringing. And he picks up on this motif, on this example that this one is the lamb that all those other lambs were pointing to. Because in the book of Exodus, the people of God are enslaved by an evil, wicked Pharaoh. And God says he will redeem them by stretching out his hand and he does a series of plagues to get Pharaoh's attention. But the last one would be the plague of death where the angel of death would sweep through the land of Egypt and kill every firstborn of every house. But there was a way to be passed over. And the way to be passed over was taking the blood of the lamb and smearing it on your doorframe of your house. There's a way for God If you trusted in his word that he said he would be faithful to his promise, you do that thing. And then John says, number three, Jesus is our Passover lamb. That all those other lambs were pointing to this one that was come. They were all patterns of one thing that was coming. That Jesus did his saving for us through his death on the cross. You see, we need our sin covered. We need our sin passed over, but nothing we can do can fix it. Nothing we can buy or possess or achieve can heal our brokenness. You see, from this, just these three simple patterns of Jesus, we see that the Bible is one unified story that begs for Jesus, that you can see human brokenness in the Bible. That every person in the Old Testament, they're like, is this one the one we've been waiting for? Is it this one? Well, it wasn't that one. Well, maybe it's this one. Is this one the snake crusher? Is this one the king that will lead us? Is this one the prophet who will finally fulfill the promises that has been given? Until they get to Jesus. Now back to Emmaus. In Luke 24, as Jesus begins talking to these two guys, they have no clue who he is. He starts unpacking the Old Testament, pointing to the Messiah, pointing to himself. They have no clue that it's himself. They don't recognize him. And the, the conversation on the road turns to a conversation over a meal in a few short verses. And in Luke chapter 24, in verse 30, it says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, 
and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. You see, their eyes were opened. It began to click. Their light bulb came on. They're like, oh, that was him. Like the whole Bible that we'd studied our whole lives from childhood, that was talking about him. I missed it. You see, the, one, the Bible is one unified story that, that begs for Jesus. Have your eyes been opened yet? Because I don't have to convince you about your life story being a story of brokenness. Like you could talk about all day about how there's brokenness that exists in your life, whether it was by your choices or the choices of other people. Choices of things that you said very carefully and very intentionally because you wanted them to be like daggers. Or things that you chose not to say very intentionally and they end up being daggers and you didn't mean to. You have Thanksgiving meal coming up this week and the holiday season. And for many, it's a time of celebration. But for you, it's just a reminder of the heartache. You know that your life has a brokenness in it. That the same, a similar way that the Bible is one unified story that begs for Jesus, our lives are one story that beg for Jesus. Because we experience brokenness. We are aware of it. And we're aware that we need a healer. We need a forgiver. We need a rescuer. I have good news. Jesus came to rescue. Jesus is the rescuer that we've all been waiting for and longing for. That's in a similar way as the people in the Old Testament were like, is this the one? Every time you try a new thing, you're asking the same question. Is this the thing? Even if you're just here out of just hey, to make somebody else happy, I can bear through an hour going to church. You're looking for that. What's that next thing? Will it do what I'm hoping it would do? Paul tells Timothy these faithful words in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what he came to do. You and I, we can't save ourselves. Only Jesus can do that. None of our good deeds, none of our stuff, none of our money, nothing, nothing can do that. Only Jesus can heal our brokenness. And here's the, the beautiful thing. This is not a bait and switch. I'm not gonna spend the next remaining six, seven minutes trying to convince you why you need to accept Jesus. Because here's the reality. Jesus is not a little kid in the corner who needs a new friend. He doesn't need you to accept him. The reality for all of us is we need him. So the question that I want to ask you is, will you allow Jesus to rescue you? In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus calls his first disciples, he says simple but powerful words. He, he simply just proposes this question. Come follow me. Come follow me. And the me that Jesus is talking about here, as we've learned and just scratched the surface today, the me is the light switch of heaven, the ultimate snake crusher, the ultimate prophet who delivers the perfect word of God, the king who always judges righteously with a gentle yet firm loving hand. He is the suffering servant. 
He is all that and so much more. So when he says those simple words, come follow me, that's the me Jesus was talking about. And they didn't get it. But on that road to Emmaus, when they were sitting over that meal, the very next verse, in verse 33, I believe it is, after Jesus leaves that meal, they they look around at each other and said, weren't our hearts burning as he was speaking to us? Man, I hope your hearts are burning. So the last question, and I'm done, I want to leave you with is, who are you sharing with? Who Who are you sharing with? And this is not in such a way like you need to invite somebody to family dinner so you can corner them and be like, let me tell you about Jesus. Like, no, like it doesn't matter where you're at in your faith journey. You can help somebody else take a next step. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you're at. You could simply invite them to church. You could tell them about how Jesus has changed your life. Or you could try to do what Jesus did and walk them through the whole Old Testament, talk about how, you know, you could do something crazy. But the simple thing is, is what is God through the power of his Holy Spirit burdening and burning your heart for? Do you need a rescuer? Do you need to simply dive in his word and, and, and look for Jesus and be like, man, I didn't get this. But now like I'm seeing this of like how he is everything. He is the person of the scripture. The whole Bible is one story that begs for Jesus. And as we wind down this morning, we're gonna have our prayer team down front. Our band's gonna come out and sing one more song. I'm simply just going to invite you to respond as God is moving you to do. Whatever your heart is burning with, I hope it's burning. If it's to pray, to take a next step, you can come down and talk to one of these volunteers. They would love to pray with you and and help you take whatever that next step is with God. Maybe you want to come and pray for, hey, I need somebody to hold me accountable to, to get in God's word. Maybe it's you need to pray to be bold over Thanksgiving dinner to Share the love of God and what he has done in your life. Not as just a box to be checked, but as a person who God loves enough, loved enough to step out of heaven, come to earth and pursue them. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And if you've experienced that life change, you should share it. So who are you sharing with? Who Are you looking to come to faith this holiday season? Whether you're watching online, you can jump into the chat. We would have hosts that would love to pray with you. Or if you're at a physical location, we have people down front that would love to pray with you. My simple request is this. If your heart is burning, respond.